I think that um, that might work a little bit better than um, doing what we were doing with Macbeth, which is um, jumping around and also talking about what various critics were saying. So I will send you some more critical stuff to read, in particular Stanley Cavell, um, Janet Edelman, and Harold Bloom, and also a wonderful essay by, oh shit, what is her name? Laura Quinney. Laura Quinney. A wonderful essay by Laura Quinney on um, the messengers in Antony and Cleopatra. Um, but um, I think what we'll do is uh, is do this this uh, pretty close reading that we started doing last week, and which because for most of you the play is fairly unfamiliar. Um, is that right? How many? Remind me how many people? Um, I don't know if the hand raising thing works right on my um, screen, but uh, raise your hands. Yeah, it should. Raise your hands if this is not your first time through Antony and Cleopatra. So, um, um, okay, and I'm still looking for where the hand, raise your hand. Okay, so, so Grace, it's not your first time through. Ari, it's not your first time through. I see how this works. Not the best. Okay, so for everyone else, it's pretty much your first time through the play. Um, and uh, I think because of that, it's really, really worth uh, doing this close reading, partly because it's the language is so amazing. So um, what you should... What, what I thought what worked... Um, I thought what worked pretty well on Friday was um, going through it and uh, you guys interrupting me or each other or asking questions as needed. And you can do that either by unmuting and talking. Don't worry about interrupting. I can interrupt you if you're interrupting me or someone else at a time um, when uh, I want to keep going or they want to or I want them to keep going. So don't worry about interrupting. And um, either raise your hand via chat or speak, um, unmute and speak if there's something that you want to say. And I'll ask questions, obviously, also. So I think and hope that that will go pretty well. Uh, remind me, where's the hand raise button, says Matt. And LV wants to know the same thing. So I don't have a hand raise button because I don't have to raise my hand because, I'm the, because it's my meeting. I, I am at a loss. So someone say where the hand raise, go to participants. Um, okay, so you guys have a thing at the bottom of your screen that just says participants, is that right? Someone not, or, or Ari not, if that's true, since I'm seeing you, okay. Um, yeah, so the problem is the list of people, I can only, I can't see the whole list on my screen at the same time, um, because I'm, uh, I have to scroll it. So, um, um... So I'll keep scrolling, um, but chat if no one is, um, I am seeing the chats as they come in. So uh, chat if you're raising your hand. Um, are you in gallery mode? It might help you to see everyone. So um, where would I find, I feel like I am, but where is the moat? Where would I find that, Ari? Um, if you go up to the corner, um, like the, the top bar of your yeah. computer, there should be a meeting button. And then instead of speaker view, put it on gallery view. Um, so let's see. Okay, gallery view. Okay, yeah, I still can't see. Okay, so how many people can I see? 12, or I can see 15. 
All right. Are you all in gallery? Yeah. Okay. I can't hear you all, but good. Okay. And are there 15 participants? All right. That works. Thank you. Um, all right. So everyone can hear? Cool. All right. So where, where we were on Friday was um, talking about... Um, we began the second scene, which was um, uh, Cleopatra's women, um, a soothsayer, Mardian, who is going to be an important minor character. There are probably more important minor characters in Antony and Cleopatra than in any other play. It's uh, one, of, one of the things that Shakespeare is great at. Uh, is important minor characters. And uh, you can imagine, um, as we did, that characters like Horatio are not quite major, but they're um, more than minor characters. But you can think of a character uh, like Satan or Satan in Macbeth, who's there only very, very briefly. Or you can think about Lady Macduff and her children, who are there only very, very briefly. And yet, they're, the, they're those little sketches of really important minor characters. In Antony and Cleopatra, the minor characters are probably more integrated into the play than in any other play of Shakespeare's. Possibly, you could say that what Shakespeare is doing is um, treating minor characters the way you would treat minor characters in a comedy because comedies are about um, a lot of business between different groups of people. Generally, tragedies are focused on the tragic figures. So maybe a way of putting this is to say that um, what's important about these minor characters is that they are so much a part of the world that the major characters are in, that Antony and Cleopatra are in, that it's that there isn't a gigantic distinction between them. There isn't, um, some of you may know, this used to be a pro-life bumper sticker. It was a quotation from, I believe it was Jeremiah. It was one of the prophetic books. I'm pretty sure it's Jeremiah. And the quotation um, is, um, before you were born, be, when you lay, before you lay conceived, or no, when you lay, in the womb, I knew you. And um, so that's God speaking. And he, um, the idea would be that you are already known to God at the moment of your conception. That's, in fact, in context, not what is happening in um, Jeremiah. What's happening in Jeremiah is God is saying to him, unlike everyone else, you were special. And I knew you before you were born. Um, but didn't know other people. And that would be a version of what Hazlitt complained about in Shakespeare that we talked about a little bit, uh, talked about it more, I think, last semester, but talked about it a little bit in this class, that the language of poetry falls in naturally with the language of power. The principle of poetry is a very anti-leveling principle. So the idea there that Hazlitt, who's a, who was a um, radical leftist, uh, but loved Shakespeare, was concerned 
that tragic poetry was um, tragedy about great people who were different from you and me, who are, um, I think I did cut off a little bit. I, it said unstable for a second, um, but I feel like I'm a stable genius and you should be able to hear me again. Um, the um, Hazlitt's complaint is the tragedy is always about um, great people and not about ordinary people. So, so the point about, as I'm sure you all learned in high school, the point about a play like Death of a Salesman is, anyone remember the name of the salesman in Death of a Salesman? Type it if you do. How many people have read it? Yes, good. Willie Lohman. Um, so Lohman as in low man, not someone who is um, way up there. Um, and yes, he was extremely avert. Um, and uh, Willie probably as a kind of gesture to, to Shakespeare. So that you have Shakespearean tragedy and then you have the tragedy of the low man and that's supposed to be something different. But Hazlitt was already complaining about that. So what I would say the amazing thing about Annie and Cleopatra is that you don't get that radical distinction, even though Antony practically his first words are, we stand up peerless. What he means by being peerless is that their love is peerless, not that they are the most important political or public figures in the world, but that it's their love that makes them um, the, the subject of interest. And you can probably start seeing this happening in Hamlet when Polonius says of the players, Hamlet says, see that the players are well bestowed. Polonius says, I will use them according to their um, value or according to their worth. And Hamlet says, nay, better, better, use each man according to his worth and none should scape whipping. Um, so basically Hamlet persistently is denying priority in relation to other people. He's persistently calling himself one of, um, of, uh, of several people who are on the same level as he is and denying that being Prince of Denmark makes him important. We saw that again in Richard II. I live with bread like you, feel want, taste, grief, need friends, subjected thus, how can you say to me I am a king? Um, it's certainly the case in King Lear when Lear gives up the throne, thinks he can still be king when he's no longer king, and finds out that he can't. But nevertheless, even though he can't, he is still a tragic figure, or only becomes a tragic figure when he's no longer king. So I think you're getting more and more of that as um, Shakespeare is getting later and later in his sequence of tragedies. Coriolanus is an odd meditation on just this. But so here we are with these minor characters. Uh, the soothsayer, Charmian, Iris, Mardian, who, as I say, will be important later. Um, and Alexis, who is one of Antony's officers. And um, Charmian wants to know who she's going to marry, not because she's so excited about getting married, but so excited about having a husband that she can cheat on. So that's uh, where we were on Friday. Alexis calls the soothsayer, soothsayer, your will. So what was the actual, um, Tommy says, what was, uh, 
Oh, Talia, where does Antony say um, that we stand up peerless? You can nod, I can see you. Um, he says it in Act 1, Scene 1, He said when he won't hear the messengers. He says, um, he, he says that he wants the world to wheat on pain of punishment. We stand up peerless. Uh, the actual power structure of the triumvirate is that, yeah, they were... Um, Think of it a little bit as uh, like being the Supreme Court, where each justice in the Supreme Court also has responsibility for one of the circuits. And if there's an appeal or an emergency stay or something, that particular justice has responsibility for that um, that part of the U.S. But they, when they're talking about uh, what happens to the whole country, then they meet in session together and they come to agreement. And so the fact that Antony is in Alexandria and not in Rome means that he and, and Caesar can't consult. And when Rome is attacked, Antony isn't there to figure out um, what to do in, in um, repulsing that attack or encounter attacking. Uh, Lepidus is there, but Antony isn't. So at any rate, um, the soothsayer is called in by Alexis. Charmian, is this the man? Is it you, sir, that know things? Um, so what do you think of that formulation? Is it you, sir, that know things? Is there anything odd about that? I don't mean, do you understand what it means? Of course you do. Um, but is there anything odd about um, putting it that way? I mean, I guess she doesn't make this distinction that, like, does he know things about the future? It's just, does he know things, like, period? So it's like, it, there's just this implication that, like, nobody else knows anything because she doesn't specify, like, that it's the, like, about the future. Okay, good. So the, um, uh, what it does, and, um, I just want to, um, uh, it is, yeah, Tommy, it is quite literally his job to know things, but we all know things. So it makes the word know there feel a little bit more active than we ordinarily take it to be. Um, that is, know is grammatically, technically an active verb, but it has a little bit of a semi-passive feel. If I know something, I'm not actually doing anything to the thing that I know, I'm just knowing it. So it's not like um, if, I, um, uh, in, if, if I read something, then I'm actively doing it, I'm turning it from being unread to being read. If I cook something, I'm turning it from being raw to being cooked. But if I know something, I'm uh, not doing anything to it. It's rather it's doing something to me, namely giving me knowledge of it. But the soothsayer is being treated, the verb know there is being treated as though it has just a smidgen of an active quality to it. That is, um, when, and what that should, um, where we see no used actively that way. Um, we don't see it that often, but we do see it sometimes when we say something like, um, 
King Lear saying, know that we have divided our land in three. Or if you see um, a, um, a, a sign, a legal document, which says, um, by these presents, know that um, uh, you are, that, that um, if you keep walking on this land, you will be trespassing. Um, then what you have is a kind of use of the word know, which is more active than ordinary. It's not really peculiar, but it's something that um, we, we notice. Uh, and where we've seen it in Antony and Cleopatra is when Antony says that already is in that uh, moment I already quoted when Antony says that he binds the, the world on pain of punishment to wheat, where the word wheat means no. Um, he binds the world on pain of punishment to wheat. We stand up peerless. So that is, he says, the world will be punished if they don't know something, namely that we stand up peerless. And you can't really, or there, there's something that should feel slightly peculiar about treating no as an imperative verb. Um, we do it all the time, but it always has a kind of rhetorical feel. Um, Othello, no, but that I loved the fair Desdemona, I would not have given up my unhoused condition. So, um, so it's, it does mean act in accordance with, but it doesn't when it's the soothsayer. When it's the soothsayer who is someone who knows things, it's um, not quite the same thing as um, become informed of something, but not quite the same thing as happen to know. It requires some activity. And I'm just trying to sensitize you. I won't, um, I won't keep doing this, but I will. Um, but just trying to sensitize you to the peculiarly active um, use of verbs, of certain verbs that we don't think of being active in Antony and Cleopatra. When Antony says, let Rome in Tiber melt, melt is not a very active verb. It's um, not really a verb, uh, um, I think I'm back. It's not really a verb that uh, you would use with the imperative because you don't actively melt. If someone says, says to you, melt, you wouldn't quite know what they meant. Um, so to say, let Rome and Tiber melt, if that's a second person, I don't care if Rome melts in the Tiber, that's one thing. But if it's more active than that, I demand that Rome melt in the Tiber, that again is gonna be a slightly peculiar use of the word melt. And you're gonna see words like that throughout Antony and Cleopatra. Sink is gonna be a verb like that. Another verb like that is rot. Um, so we do say that, we say rot in hell, um, but that's partly a powerful thing to say because it's like, you don't have a choice as to whether you rot or not. Um, you can't actively rot, and yet when someone says rot in hell to you, um, they're pushing you harder than you can quite imagine being pushed. Another, um, for me, the best example of this kind of verb in Cleopatra, as you'll see, is the verb fall. How do you tell someone to fall? How can they actively fall? Um, I guess Buzz Lightyear can. 
but um, in general, you can't really actively fall. But that is how the verb is going to be used in Annie Cleopatra. So I'm just trying to, um, I think this is the kind of thing you'll notice without noticing it. And so I'm hoping now you'll notice with noticing it a little bit. So is it you, sir, that know things? Is it the soothsayer who has this talent, which is that he can take things and know them? Soothsayer, in nature's infinite book of secrecy, a little I can read. What do you think of the tone of that? Uh, to actively wish death upon someone? Um, yeah, it is. Um, oh, nice. So I suppose aging could be considered rotting. But can you say to someone, age? Um you know the the uh, the insult the the active nastiness of DIA sorry DIAF is um, you're wishing that upon someone, but it's like you are also demanding that they do it, and um, that's part of what makes it nasty is that you're making an insane demand on them, something that can't quite be a demand and therefore can only be a wish. Um, so what the soothsayer says is a great line because it implies that he knows more than the average man, but as a man, his scope is inherently limited. Yeah, so nature's book of secrecy is infinite, but he can read a little um, in it. What do you think, what do you think the tone is, his tone is compared to uh, Charmian's tone when she's um, looking forward to her cuckold of a husband? How would you... Um, distinguish their tones. So, yeah, uh, he says the soothsayer sounds uh, a little reserved because he's not being very direct. It seems like he's covering for himself a little, so he has an excuse if he's later proven wrong. Okay. Uh, Talia thinks his tone might be unconcerned. Um, does uh, the soothsayer have some humility? Good. Um, it almost seems like a modesty in a sense. Like when someone says like, oh, this guy's such a great, you know, instrumentalist. And he's like, I, I'm not that good. I mean, I'm good, but I'm not that good. Yeah. Um, yeah. The soothsayer may have to pursue his football journey elsewhere. Um, the, it, could, yeah. sorry, it could also be defensive because it almost seems as if um, Charmian is suggesting that um, that, he, that the soothsayer could choose to read, could choose to know certain things and choose to not know certain things. And um, the soothsayer is saying that there's little he can read rather than there's little he does read. Okay, nice. I, I don't know. Or I think it could also be understood because she seems like pretty pressed to know what he knows and like that's why she's questioning him so much like you know she has this one line where she just says soothsayer kind of just like trying to get his attention i think but i think that because he's it can be read is that he's so secure in his ability to you know understand the universe or to just understand this knowledge that he doesn't feel the need to bend to her will because the only will he bends to is that of the universe okay nice that's good um so, or ironic understatement, says Sun Kyung, um, that he considers himself good. Yeah, so it can feel like, um, you know, oh, this old thing. Um, but I think what what it's really worth noticing is the complete difference in tone between the way, um, I, I think you guys are noticing that, the complete difference in tone between the way Charmian is speaking and the way the soothsayer is speaking. 
and uh, Charmian is an, um, uh, well, you'll see, but Char- Charmian is speaking in a fun-loving way, looking forward to partying, and the soothsayer is speaking in a way that is serious and deep and about nature's infinite book of secrecy. And really, 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 you don't want to be in a play with a soothsayer in it because it's going to be a tragedy. Um, You're not going to have soothsayers in comedies. Imagine a soothsayer in A Midsummer Night's Dream. Um, Soothsayer, your will. What will happen to Hermia and, um, and Lysander? Well, nature's infinite book of secrecy suggests, you know, it's never going to suggest something good. It's never going to say that they're going to have a lot of fun tonight. Um, that's, not what, that's not the sooth that soothsayers say. So um, when you have a soothsayer, um, so what are you thinking of in Cymbeline, Grace? Like, it's not quite a tragedy and also like nothing that like the soothsayer does really wreaks any havoc or like detriment to anybody. Like, and it almost is like a good fortune, even though it's really veiled, like it's in this metaphor, but it's basically like everything's going to turn out all right. And like, I don't know, it was like, will be strong and like the protagonist will go to the girl and whatever. And like all this stuff that's like not really that, like, it's not as, like, tragic as, you know, what the prophecy in Macbeth winds up, how it turn, right. winds up turning out. Like, Yeah, good. Um, so what we could say maybe about Cymbeline, I don't know how many people have read it, um, but what we could say maybe about Cymbeline is that when you have soothsayers, you, you have worry. If you were in a play with a soothsayer, it may be that there will be a way that um, it, it works out and it's okay and um but when soothsayers are around you worry about what their prophecy means and how it's going to come to fruition and even if their prophecy is a good one you may worry that you're misunderstanding it um that's what the delphic oracle does uh most famous prophecy is to um uh cyrus who said should i attack not the most famous prophecy but one of them should i attack uh, Greece, and the soothsayer said, if you do, you will destroy a great kingdom. So, like a fool, he does, and the great kingdom he destroys is his own. So, um, soothsayers are famously ambiguous in what they say, and this one isn't, but it's it's worth noticing that there is therefore a kind of clash of tones between fun-loving Charmian, who's a wonderful character, I'm waiting for this to stabilize. Okay, fun-loving Charmian, who's a wonderful character, and um, the soothsayer, who seems to be the bass note in um, the music that's playing here. Um, so, you can hear that. Is this the man? Is it you, sir, that know things? That could be teasing. The word no there could just be a little bit teasing. Um, in nature's infinite book of secrecy, I little I can read. So there's a kind of competition between them to set the tone for the scene. Show him your hand, says Alexis. And then Ina Barbus in the background is getting the banquet set up. Bring in the banquet quickly. Wine enough. Cleopatra's health to drink. Um, so lots of wine to drink Cleopatra, Cleopatra's health. Everyone is going to have to drink to her. So that means lots of wine. And then 
Charmian to the soothsayer, good sir, give me good fortune. So what do you make of the word give there? Just anyone. It's active. It's like the soothsayer who like can choose to give her a good fortune. Yeah, as though the soothsayer could choose to give her good fortune. Um, as though he is uh, more active than in fact he is. And the soothsayer immediately says, I make not but foresee. That is, I can't give you good fortune. I can just see what's going to happen. Then Charmian's answer is, pray then foresee me one. So... Um, again, she's she's taking what should be um, a completely um, non-active verb and making it active. Um, so here's her fortune. You shall be yet far fairer than you are. So that sounds good, that um, she'll be more beautiful than she is. Um, but Charmian um, is, you know, is... is finds this all funny and says, he means in flesh, that is, I'll, I'll gain a lot of weight. Um, Iris teases her, no, you shall paint when you are old. Um, that is, uh, who's, who's the, um, what's the most famous speech in Shakespeare about women painting their faces? Anyone know? Hamlet attacking Ophelia uh, in the Get Thee to a Nunnery sequence. Um, don't look at me. Okay. Um, so you'll be fair. Um, Charmian says, because I'll get fat. Iris says, no, because you're going to be putting on tons of makeup. Charmian's wrinkles forbid. God forbid I should cover my wrinkles. Alexis, vex not his prescience. Be attentive. Um, what's his prescience? What does that mean? Um, his ability to predict the future. So that's what prescience is. Um, the phrase his prescience might sound like, um, where else do we have a possessive pronoun and an abstract noun in, Shakespeare, in uh, Shakespearean um, uh, forms of speech? Yes, LV, like his majesty. So the so they're parodying the soothsayer. It's well, your prescience, whatever you think. Um, so so here he is telling them grim things, and or at least sounding um, um, serious, trying to get them to be serious, and they're making fun of that. Vex not his prescience. Be attentive. Hush, soothsayer. You shall be more beloving than beloved. So um, you will love more than you yourself are loved. Anyone know um, the W.H. Auden line that picks up from this? Famous um, couplet. If equal love there cannot be, let the more loving one be me. So that's always a question in any relationship. Do you want to be the one who loves more or the one who is loved more if you don't have equal love? Um, a hard question. That's one of those, uh, they, they should do that on um, the newlywed game. If equal love there cannot be, let the more loving one be me. Um, maybe. At any rate, she will be the more loving one, says the soothsayer. You shall be more beloving than beloved. And then Charmian has a great answer. I'd rather heat my liver with drinking. 
So I'd rather be drunk. Um, that sounds like more fun. Um, Alexis can see the soothsayer is getting a little bit impatient. Nay, hear him, says Alexis. Charmian then says, demands fortune again. Good now, some excellent fortune. Let me be married to three kings in a forenoon and widow them all. Let me have a child at 50 to whom Herod of Jewry may do homage. Find me to marry with Octavius Caesar and companion me with my mistress. Okay, you notice what word are we noticing here that is too active um, or is more active than its normal use? Uh, uh, let. Okay, let. Yeah, let me be married to three king, um, kings in um, uh, in a forenoon. Uh, companion. Uh, yeah, that's that's a noun that's been verbed. And find. Yeah, here's what I want you to find. Um, this is a little bit like like the Trumpian use of find. Um, that is. Find it to be the case that um, the that this virus is not a problem. Um, find it to be the case that um, my meeting with um, um, with with uh, um, various people that I met with was perfect. Um, so you can't quite do that, but that's what they want. Find me to marry with Octavius Caesar and companion me with my mistress. Um, soothsayer, still grim. You shall outlive the lady whom you serve. Who is that lady? Cleopatra. Yeah, Cleopatra. Um, so then Charmian has this amazing line. Oh, excellent. I love long life better than figs. Um, any of you prefer figs to long life? Really? So again, notice the... Um, kind of absurd and wonderful comparison between, well, there are two things, you know, you have a choice, you could have figs, you could have long life, I know it's a hard choice, which do you pick? And um, uh, I'm not, a, yeah, I'm not a fan of figs, they're kind of toxically sweet, and you want long life, so you don't want something that's toxic. Um, so figs are long life, um, what will you pick? As the old Jewish saying goes, it is better to be um, young, rich, and healthy than old, sick, and poor. So if you have a choice between young, um, rich, and healthy or old, sick, and poor, eh, pick young, rich, and healthy. Um, have a choice between long life and figs. Mm, it's hard, but pick long life. Um, now, the footnotes will tell you rightly that there's also a little bit of an obscene joke in figs. Um, but um, because they look like male genitals, but that's um, but the real um, idea here is um, that there's this strange comparison, which is um, between long life and figs, which is her version. Long life is a different story, which is her version, I think, of there's not a minute of our lives should stretch without some pleasure now. Remember Antony saying that to Cleopatra in the previous scene. That is that um, figs, that would be pleasure. And long life, that would be life. And um, they are somehow being put on the same scale. One isn't orders of magnitude more important than the other. So does that mean that Antony prefers figs to long life? You may have to figure that out as you read the play. 
Um, but that might be a really good tweet um, summary of the play. So, um, I love long lives better than figs. The soothsayer says something grim again. You have seen and proved a fairer, former fortune than that which is to approach. So the best part of your life is over. Um, yeah, it is a possible foreshadowing, Tommy. Um, you have seen and proved a fairer, former fortune than that which is to, appro to approach. And then Charmian, then be like my children shall have no names. Um, that is that they will be um, bastards. They won't, um, they, they won't um, be official. Um, then be like my children shall have no names. Pretty, how many boys and wenches must I have? So she, now she wants to know how many um, children she's going to have, bastards or not. Um, bastards because she's having lots of sex outside of marriage, um, premarital or extramarital. Um, and then the soothsayer turns out he does get vexed. So vex not his prescience. Well, here he is being vexed. Um, if every one of your wishes had a womb and fertile every wish, a million. So here he is trying to tell her serious things. And um, she is teasing and teasing and teasing. And he loses the battle for tone. And that's really something. Okay, so Talia says, but also can't love give the feeling of infinite youth life. Maybe saying that even though they're older, their love will live forever. Um, yeah, and Tommy says that is certainly what Antony would like. I think so, but I also think that um, when he says there's not a minute of our life should stretch without some pleasure now, um, contrast that with Macbeth's idea of the present moment or of somehow staying upon this bank and shoal of time. Antony and Cleopatra know that time is fleeting in a way that Macbeth and Lady Macbeth are trying to deny. So here he is writing about two couples at the same time, Antony and Cleopatra and the Macbeths, and um, they have the, they are a two diametrically opposed um, they, uh, um, places in their view, in the spectrum of views towards time. They are um, on the other side of things from the Macbeths. The Macbeths want to stop time and they want to burn through it. They, um, there's not much time left and so they have to burn through it as um, brightly as possible. Um, some of you probably know the famous Edna St. Vincent Millay poem, My Candle Burns at Both Ends. Um, do you know it, um, Cassie? Yeah, it's um, uh, My Candle Burns at Both Ends. It will not last the night, but something, something, something. But all my foes and all yeah. my friends. I knew most of it. Yeah. But oh my foes and all my friends, it has a lovely, it gives a lovely light. So they're definitely burning the candle at both ends in the, um, the St. Vincent Millay version, um, which is uh, burning as brightly as possible. Um, are they also opposite in views of power and responsibility? Grace says, there I'm not so sure, um, certainly in their love of power, but they both could be said to be irresponsible. Um, and maybe that's a really good good uh, question to ask because what you might have here are two opposing ways of being irresponsible. Um, the Malcolm character in Antony and Cleopatra is Octavian. Uh, he and that's why we have um, 
the scarce bearded Caesar, and um, I will not stoop to kiss the ground before young Malcolm's feet. Okay, so Charmian, out, fool. I forgive thee for a witch. So here we have a mention of witches in Antony and Cleopatra. Um, not anything anyone would notice except for, oh, I have to admit, um, admit, admit. Okay. All right. Um, um, is it, so LV says, um, is there a way that the soothsayer says the every of your wishes has a womb line in a not, not vex way that it could also be a foreshadowing prophecy? So, um, LV, do you want to say how you would read it that way? Can you, can you, um, give it that reading? Perform it. LV. I think she doesn't want to. Um, well, so just just to tell you, Charmian is not going to have any children um, in the play. So uh, I think, oh, sorry, my mic doesn't work. Um, I think that that's, um, uh, that that's pretty indicative that he simply, that, that he is, that he is vexed. Um, so, um, and then Charmian just laughs at him. Out fool, I forgive thee for a witch. And then Alexis says, see, he knows about you. Um, you think none but your sheets are privy to your wishes. Um, so you think that only when you're lying in bed, um, having sex with someone does it's only there that anyone knows what you really want. Um, but we all know uh, Charmian laughs. Nay, come, tell Iris hers. Alexis will know all our fortunes. And then Enobarbus gives his fortune, and his fortune is, again, just that particular day. Mine and most of our fortunes tonight shall be drunk to bed. So they know that they're going to party and go to bed drunk. Um Iris holds her hand out to the soothsayer to read it and says, there's a palm presages chastity, if nothing else. So if you look at my palm, you can see that I'm a chaste um, person. Yep, that's right, Tommy. Um, you think none but your sheets are privy to your wishes is such an eloquent way of saying you are a whore. Um, so there's a palm presages chastity, if nothing else. And then Charmian ha says even as the overflowing Nile presageth famine. So what does she mean by that? Even as the overflowing Nile presageth famine. Like the flooding of the Nile would bring like really rich soil like onto like the farmlands. So like the, uh, like that overflowing would like show like a, it would like uh predict like a good harvest so it's basically saying that like there's no way that that's true right and you'll remember that um this is exactly what antony describes on ship on on pompey's ship when he says that but with certain scales they take the measure of the nile to see how far it floods and by how far it floods, they know they can predict. It's another soothsaying moment, but here done um, with a scientific instrument 
um, they can predict whether dearth or foisson, that is whether um, famine or, or um, abundance will follow in the growing season. So what happens is the Nile brings mud down towards the um, Mediterranean and um, the more it overflows, the more mud is spread out on the banks and um, the more mud and the mud is very fertile and the more mud that's spread out on the banks, the more um, the, the more the more food they'll be able to grow. And so, yeah, Grace, exactly that. It's sarcastic. It's like there's a palm presage. It's chastity, if nothing else. Yeah, it presages chastity if the overflowing Nile presageth famine. So neither of those is true. They, they are they're equally true. Where have we seen the word or flow before? Something about overflow the measure. Yeah, where was that? <laughs> about uh, Antony's dotage of Cleo over Cleopatra. Yeah, it's the first line of the play. Always remember first lines. Nay, but this dotage of our generals o'erflows the measure. So here's that word again. Even as the overflowing Nile presageth famine. So when the Nile overflows, that's a good thing. And so here you can see, and um, you will see a sequence of um, um, ways that this opposition is set up. But here, what you can do is see an opposition between the way the Romans think about overflowing and the way the Egyptians do. So for the Romans to overflow is to lose control of yourself, to lose um, self-discipline and to to go slack and um, to to uh, be doing the wrong thing. For the Egyptians, overflowing is the best thing that can happen. So that so it's the same idea, the idea of overflowing, but it's valued in two different ways. For the Romans, it's valued very negatively. For the Egyptians, it's valued very positively. Um, Iris, making um, fun of Charmian, go, you wild bedfellow, you cannot soothsay. Um, Charmian says, no, I can, nay. If an oily palm be not a fruitful prognostication, I cannot scratch my ear. Um, so um, oily palm is uh, just means that it, it really means sweaty palm, and it means that you get excited easily. Um, prithee, tell her but a workaday fortune. So again, tell her a fortune as though you're in control of the fortune that you're going to tell. Soothsayer. Your fortunes are alike. So he's not going to be involved anymore with giving them warnings. He just is, again, trying to be grim. Your fortunes are alike. Iris, but how, but how? Give me particulars. Um, nice. Nice, Tish. Um, Charmian's demand to be given a good fortune presageth Cleopatra's demand for the message she wants from the messenger. That's exactly right. When the messenger comes in, uh, Cleopatra tries to bribe him to give her <coughs> the message that she wants to hear. So we'll notice that. Um, but how, but how, give me particulars. 
I have said. Am I not an inch of fortune better than she? Are we ex- exactly alike? So why do you why do you all think that their fortunes are exactly alike? Anyone? What is that? What is that telling us is going to happen in the play? Like something will happen to both of them, like during the play, that will result in them having the same fortune. Yeah, that so is likely the, they'll die. Yeah, um, that they will die simultaneously. That um, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that, but um, that it means something like that, and in fact, that is what it means. Um, that their lives will end at the same time, that the rest of their lives um, will go in parallel and um, they won't outlive each other. Um, So uh, that's a grim prognostication. But again, Iris makes a joke um, that Charmian and Iris want to die at the same time. Um, I don't know. Do you want to hear, because because it suggests that their death will be, okay, never mind. Um, it suggests that their death will not be natural. Um, one, of the, one of the things that catastrophes, like potentially the one we're living through now, um, makes, um, is, is hard to think about, is that um, in some ways it won't be your own death but it will just be um, the death that everyone who succumbs to the catastrophe will feel. That's the way people feel in wartime. Um, that that may be the way some people are feeling now. And um, whereas if you if it's your death, then um, that's the day that you die. That's that's your death that uh, is an issue rather than a general catastrophe. But what the soothsayer is saying is uh, your fortunes are alike. Charmian, Iris, am I not an inch? Am I am I not an inch of fortune better than she? Charmian, well, if you were but an inch of fortune better than I, where would you choose it? Iris, not in my husband's nose. So what's her joke? Grace, oh, come on. Grace, you're muted. Okay. <laughs> what? Oh, sorry. I thought you wanted to answer what joke she was making. Oh, no, I didn't say anything. Oh, okay. Uh, you, you got highlighted, so I thought maybe you were. Um, oh, that's odd. Yeah, no, it's not your husband has a short nose. That's not where you would take the extra inch in your husband. It's a dick joke. Thank you. Right? Yes. Yes, it is. Um if I had an inch that I could give my husband anywhere, it wouldn't be in his nose. Um, so yeah, it's a dick joke. Um, Charmian, shocked. Our worser thoughts, heavens, mend. Alexis, come his fortune, his fortune. Oh, and here's what she wants to happen to Alexis. Oh, let him marry a woman that cannot go. Sweet Isis, I beseech thee. What does go mean there? There's a bizarre footnote here. Um, But it's obvious what it means. Well, remember talking about Monty Python? 
Is your what? Remember, is your wife a goer? A A know what I mean? So, what does the word goer mean in Monty Python, or what's it meaning here? <laughs> you guys are just bored of the dirty jokes. Yeah. Okay. Um, have sex. Right. Oh, okay. People are writing it. Um, yeah, it's, uh, oh, nice. Um, no, it's, it's have sex. Let him marry someone who, um, can't, who, 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 who isn't turned on and therefore can't have sex with him. Sweet Isich, I beseech thee. And let her die too. Um, uh, yes, Nicole, that's right. Could the use of overflow in the first line suggest that Antony is looking at life in a more Alexandrian way and Philo being Roman is disapproving of that perspective on overflowing? Um, yes, exactly. So, um, so let him marry a woman that cannot go, sweet Isis, I beseech thee, and let her die too and give him a worse and let worse follow worse till the worst of all follow him laughing to his grave fiftyfold a cuckold. So if he does marry um, wives who can go, um, let them um, be um, having sex with other people. So he's he goes to his so his last wife laughs as he's buried fiftyfold a cuckold. Good Isis, hear me this prayer, though thou deny me a matter of more weight. Good Isis, I beseech thee. So what do you make of that? Hear me this prayer, though thou deny me a matter of more weight. Someone paraphrase that. Yeah. Um, Cassie, are you raising your hand? No. Okay. I guess I can try. Sure, go for it. Um, so, obviously, I guess the this is coming right after this, like, declaration that they're going to sort of implicitly die um, in an inconse not inconsequential, but in a, in a collective way. Mm -hmm. uh, it's also after this, like the soothsayer has delivered this, um, like, I don't know, prediction for Charmian. That's very just like, I don't know, not what Charmian wanted to hear. Yeah. Um, so I think that this idea of like asking for something sort of frivolous, um, is like acknowledging a very dark reality, like implicitly, like it's not just, it, it's not just like, oh, I want my husband to suffer after I'm dead, but it's sort of acknowledging that implicitly what's being discussed is her death, mm -hmm. uh, which is sort of interesting. I don't know how well that was paraphrased, but. <laughs> no, I, th I think it's very, yeah, I think it's very well paraphrased. Um, I think that it's another example of liking long life better than figs. It's like, um, obviously long life is a matter of more weight than figs are. And maybe if the, if you put just figs in the balance on one side and long life on the other side, yeah, long life is gonna, is gonna, um, uh, be, be, um, is, is gonna beat out figs as uh, in importance. But here, the, the whole idea is that things that are obvious where one thing is more important or more valuable than another, in Alexandria, 
the way they think of things, it's not so obvious. So here, what Iris is doing is she's praying to, um, 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 I'm sorry, what Charmian is doing is praying to Isis, the goddess, and saying, I would prefer that this happened to Alexis than, you know, something more important. Deny me something more important um, and let me have this happen to Alexis. And um, it's because in Alexandria, everyone is living for the moment. Everyone is living in the present. And they, what I think you guys are rightly doing, but um, not seeing that Charmian and Iris don't care that you're doing this, is you're, say, you're kind of wishing that they would take the soothsayer more seriously. But it's not that they're um, uh, not thinking about that. It's that they're, um, uh, why even get married, says Talia. Um, yeah, who knows if they're, if they're going to get married or they may get married because they want um, the wealth that their, that their husband would give them. Um, but what you should see here is that they're partying like it's 1999. And um, they are, um, which I know was before some of you were born, um, but that they are perfectly willing to tease the soothsayer, not because they think that he can't tell the future, but because they want to live absolutely in, they, they, they want to live in the present. They want to have fun. Um, for, um, fun for them is, um, even making fun of the soothsayer. Yeah, terrible things are going to happen, um, in the end, as terrible things will happen to all of us. Um, and the soothsayer is giving them a prognostication and he's wanting them to see that life is, um, real, life is earnest, but they won't. Um, their response, which is, you could call it a comic response to the grimness of life, to um, the fact that life is tragic, is to scorn that very fact. And that scorn is the Alexandrian way of looking at the world. It's to scorn the grimness of the world and to enjoy their own scorn. You could see that again as being a way of jumping the life to come. That is that the soothsayer would have told Macbeth not to do what he's doing. Um, to some extent, Macbeth knows he's not supposed to be doing what he's doing, but he um, scorns the future in order to live in the present. So that would be a place where there's parallel between Macbeth and Antony and Cleopatra. But Macbeth thinks he's going to get a lot out of scorning the life to come, whereas that's not what they want. They don't want a lot. They just want um, present mirth. And um, the um, present mirth is um, uh, the only thing that you can do in comedy, present mirth hath, hath present um, laughter. Um, the only thing that you can do, and it's what comedies do, is um, to set up life as it is lived now in its most vitalist fashion 
against death and to choose um, the vitality of the present moment against a grim sense of preparing for the future. So in Alexandria, they're all grasshoppers. Um, and when the ant gives them advice, um, they know what the ant is saying is right from the ant's point of view. It's not like they disbelieve the truth of what the ant is saying, but what a life to live like an ant. They're not going to do that. They would much rather live like uh, grasshoppers. So could this, Nicole says, could this parallel Banquo's relative indifference to the witches? And Talia answers, I think the difference is that Banquo understands the finality and security of the prophecy while Macbeth wants to ensure that it happens. The people in Alexandria simply want to enjoy life. Yeah, I think that's right, um, Talia. Um, so, um, Amen, says Iris. Dear goddess, hear the prayer of the people. For as it is a heartbreaking to see a handsome man loose-wived, so it is a deadly sorrow to behold a foul knave uncuckolded. Therefore, dear Iris, dear Isis, keep decorum and fortune him accordingly. Another interesting verb there, right? Fortune. Um, amen, says Charmian. Alexis shaking his head. Um, lo, now, if it lay in their hands to make me a cuckold, they would make themselves whores, but they do it. Um, so that's them with the soothsayer. The soothsayer is going to return later in the play. And now here comes Cleopatra. Hush, here comes Antony, says Zena Barbas. Why do you think he makes that mistake? Why does Shakespeare make him make that mistake? Cleopatra comes in, but Ina Barbas thinks it's Antony. Take a guess, someone. I don't, I don't know if I have a good answer. I have a, a possible answer, but I don't know if I have a good answer. But someone take a guess. I guess maybe it's because, like, they're always seen together. So maybe he would assume if one came, so would the other. Okay, so if one comes, so is the other, that he would be, uh, that, that uh, she might be um, a harbinger of his being about to come. Um, Do they look the same? Like, maybe they are, like, the same size, same height, like, footsteps? I don't know. All right, maybe they're Someone... doubled. Hard Yay! to do. No, yeah. no, I like the but, idea. Uh, I know, like, historical depictions of Cleopatra like, always show her with, like, very, very short hair, like, etc. Yeah. So maybe they have a similar look to them. Sometimes couples, like, really look alike for no reason. Yeah, that's true. Um... um could it also maybe just be like part of Shakespeare's to show like these private moments where lines aren't rehearsed and where people make mistakes and in real life conversations, like people don't know exactly what's going to happen. This is a very real thing to happen. You know, like you could be in the hallway and I might think it's another student who's coming into the classroom. Yeah. Okay. So, so that looks like one of those moments where Shakespeare is recognizing um, a real life interaction which he's just really, really great at doing. Um, do you remember any of the sex games that Cleopatra... Yeah, okay, so Elvie, could it be related um, to the notion of Antony's being feminized by Cleopatra, like to cool a gypsy's lust part? Yeah, so the question is, who's in command here? And um, if someone authoritative is coming in, maybe they're first going to think it's Antony, but then it turns out the authoritative person is Cleopatra. Um do you remember Cleopatra's description of one of the of one of the sex games they played? 
they cross-dressed. Um, Cleopatra, uh, Antony wears her um, tires and mantles, and she puts on his sword, Philippin. So one of the things they like to do is dress in each other's clothes and um, mess around with each other cross-dressed. So it could be that that is um, being, that, that Shakespeare is interested in that interested in the way that they can crisscross their parts. Um, so, hush, here comes Antony, not he, the queen. Saw you, my lord, says Cleopatra. Enobar was no lady. Was he not here? No, madam. So who's Cleopatra looking for? Antony. Yeah. Um, and then Cleopatra says, here's what happened off stage. He was disposed to mirth, but on the sudden... A Roman thought hath struck him. So what do you think um, a Roman thought means? Is it one of his wives in in Rome? Yeah, but um, just if a Roman thought struck him, I think there are two possible meanings of that. A thought of Rome or the kind of thinking that a Roman does. So the kind of thinking that a Roman does is the kind of thinking that we see in Philo and Demetrius. Um, a Roman thought would be a thought of what he's supposed to be doing in Rome. So in a way, both meanings come to the same thing, but what she doesn't want him to be is Roman. So he was disposed to mirth, but on the sudden Roman thought had struck him. Enobarbus, madam, seek him and bring him hither. So Enobarbus obeys Cleopatra's order, goes off to find Antony. Where's Alexis? Alexis, here at your service. My lord approaches. So now Antony's coming in. Enter Antony with a messenger. Um, Tisha, are you raising your hand? No, oh, okay. Um, enter Antony with a messenger. Um, Cleopatra, who'd been looking for him, now says, we will not look upon him. Go with us. And Antony and the messenger are left alone. And now the messenger is doing what messengers do, which is bringing us up to date. This is some more scene setting. We already know who Fulvia is because Cleopatra has asked, why did he marry Fulvia and not love her? Um, and the messenger is in the midst of conversation and says, Fulvia, thy wife came first into the field. Um, and... So Fulvia and Lucius, Antony's brother, are battling against each other. Uh, the footnote reminds you, I'm sure it's only reminding you, of where this um, is mentioned in um, North. And um, the messenger says, yeah, I, but soon that war had ended and the time state made friends of them, jointing their force against Caesar. So Fulvia and Antony's brother are now fighting against Octavian who's better issue in the war from Italy upon the first encounter, drive them. So um, his um, Caesar is uh, more powerful. His results were better, and, and they were driven from Italy upon their first battle. Antony, well, what worst? So... I think this is the beginning of an example uh, or um, of the example of uh, that Tish pointed out of, the, of 
Cleopatra talking to the messenger later, here Antony is talking to the messenger and asking for the truth. What's the worst thing that happens? So we've seen the soothsayer delivering news, which he thinks is bad news, but everyone is making fun of. Now here's a messenger delivering bad news. Well, what worst, says Antony, and the messenger doesn't want to say. The nature of bad news infects the teller. And that's precisely not what we were talking about earlier, which is the Senecan messenger. Yeah, this is a lot like the Macduff scene in Macbeth. It's um, when Macduff, you mean the scene where Macduff um, finds out about the death of his children. Um, precisely so. So the nature of bad news infects the teller, Antony, when it concerns the fool or coward, on, things that are past are done with me. What's that echoing in Macbeth? Anyone know? Any ideas? Maybe if it were done, Trevest, it were done quickly. Yeah, if it were done when tis done, then twere best, it twere well, it were done quickly. Um, yeah. If it were done, then when it was done, that would be good. So Antony is saying everything that's done is done. Things that are past are done with me. Um, there's an amazing moment. Um, I guess it's a tiny spoiler, but also not. Um an amazing speech that Antony um, uh, has in Act Four, where the speech begins with the words, he's just heard that Cleopatra has committed suicide. And immediately upon hearing that, he says, he's just heard it. She's just done it. And he's just heard it. And immediately upon hearing that, that, he says, since Cleopatra died, I have lived in such dishonor that the gods detest my baseness. So notice when you get to that line, since Cleopatra died, I have lived in such dishonor that the gods detest my baseness. And notice that since Cleopatra died means for the last minute, or the last five minutes, I've lived a life of dishonor and a life of detestable baseness. And how that happens that fast, that's because things that are done are done. They're in the past. She's dead and that's entirely in the past. So Emily Dickinson, um, greatest American poet, as I'm sure you all remember, Emily Dickinson, in her edition of Shakespeare, wrote in the margin of the word since there, she simply wrote, she actually wrote on a scrap of paper um, because people didn't write in books that much then. Um, the, the amazing three words, that engulfing since. The way the word since engulfs, that engulfing since. So that is what he's saying already here. Things that are past are done with me. Tis thus, who tells me true, though in his tale lie death, 
I hear him as he flattered. So if you tell me the truth, I'll take that as flattery. So the messenger goes on, Labianus, this is stiff news. He still doesn't want to tell him. Hath with his Parthian force extended Asia. So the Asian empire is now encroaching onto the Roman empire. From Euphrates, that is the river Euphrates, his conquering banner shook from Syria to Lydia and to Ionia whilst, and then he stops. Antony, thou wouldst say. So finish the sentence. You were going to say whilst Antony what? Well, how would he have finished the sentence? Whilst Antony? Antony played around. Yeah. Antony is, is, is just wasting his time in Alexandria while Rome is at war and being conquered. And Antony knows he's about to say it. Antony, that would say, oh, my Lord, says the messenger. And he says, no, speak to me home. Mince not the general tongue. Name Cleopatra, she is called in Rome. So that's what the common liar that um, Philo and Demetrius have talked about. Um, Antony has approved, has proved that the common liar is correct. Speak to me as she is called in Rome. Name Cleopatra, she is called in Rome. Rail thou in Fulvius' phrase, and taunt my faults with such full license as, doth, as both truth and malice have power to utter. So tell me all the terrible things being said about me and agree with them. Oh, then we bring forth weeds when our quick minds lie still and our ills told us is as our earring. So if I'm told all the, all the um, terrible things that I've done, um, then all the weeds that have grown in me will be plucked away. Fare thee well a while at your noble pleasure. Messenger exits and in comes another messenger. From Sisyon now, how, how the news, from Sisyon, how the news speak there. The man from Sicyon, is there such a one? He says upon your will, let him appear. Antony, these strong Egyptian fetters I must break or lose myself in dotage. So that's definitely a Roman thought because that's the Roman word. Nay, but this dotage of our generals overflows the me measure. Enter messenger with a, another messenger with a letter. What are you? And then immediately, boom, Fulvia, thy wife is dead. So first he hears about the battle, and then he hears about Fulvia's death. And of course, as I just uh, spoiled it for you, he's gonna, a messenger is going to come in with a report. In fact, I'll tell you who it is. It's Mardian is going to come in with a report of Cleopatra's death later. Fulvia, thy wife, is dead. And then he asks the amazing question, where died she? And... Those of you who took King Lear with, um, who did King Lear with me last semester will know that that's what Lear asks when he sees Cordelia. And he says, you are a spirit, I know. Where did you die? And of course the editor said, what a bizarre question. He must have meant, when did, when did you die? In most editions of King Lear, correct where, this is correct, where to when. You're a spirit, I know, where did you die? And in Hamlet, Laertes hears that Ophelia is drowned, and his response to that is, drowned? Oh, where? So that, I think, we can start with this on Friday, but I think that's a pretty amazing question, and you can find it several times in Shakespeare. 
that characters want to know where someone died, where the place of death is. That's their very first question. And it's worth thinking about why that is. Okay, you guys, safe travels, stay healthy, and um, see you Friday. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you. I'll stay on for a minute or two if anyone has questions. Um, so. Yes. Did you die, like, especially for Laertes, like, in Hamlet, um, could that have anything to do with, like, the concept of ghosts that perhaps, like, if you know where a loved one 